Good morning, church family. And welcome to week two of our study of the book of Habakkuk. For today, we will be in Habakkuk chapter one and looking at verses five through 11. However, before we get to those verses this morning, I first want to make sure that we remember exactly what transpired last week in verses one through four. So last week in verses one through four, we met the prophet Habakkuk who had a vision, and in his vision, he brought a complaint before God concerning the overall moral decay of the nation of Judah. Now, if you remember specifically the content of verses 2 through 4, you remember that Habakkuk was a man who was in the throes of distress and in the throes of grief. For he was living at a time and living in a nation where the people of God, quite simply, were turning away from God. For what Habakkuk was seeing take place throughout the nation of Judah was that the people of God were no longer submitting to God, but instead they were devoting themselves, verse 3, to iniquity, wrongdoing, destruction, violence, contention, and strife. For sin and wickedness and violence had visibly infiltrated its way into the land of Judah, permeated its way throughout the culture of Judah, and was now governing and or controlling the way of life for the people of Judah. And thus because of that, the law in Judah, it was, verse 4, paralyzed. For true, biblical, godly justice was no longer going forth since the wicked, verse 4, they surrounded the righteous. And thus, the justice that did go forth throughout this nation, it went forth perverted. Because the wicked now, they were the ones controlling this nation of Judah. Therefore, in seeing all all this wickedness, and sin and injustice permeating throughout the land of Judah, the prophet Habakkuk, he cries out to God to do something about this. For he says in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? And yet God at this time and in this place has decided to not put an end to this evil. In fact, from Habakkuk's finite and limited perspective, the evil that was taking place within the nation of Judah only seems to be getting worse and worse. And thus, make no mistake here, church, verses 2 through 4, they are a lament from the prophet Habakkuk to God concerning the overall moral decay of this great nation. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, the book of Habakkuk isn't just a lament, but it is instead an oracle, meaning it is a dialogue between that of Habakkuk and that of God himself. And thus, what we are going to see in our text today is God's response to Habakkuk concerning his initial lament, which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christians, simply because you can't comprehend everything that God does, that does not mean you can't trust Him. Christians, simply because you can't comprehend everything that God does, that that doesn't mean you can't trust Him. 
Thus, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to the Old Testament, to the minor prophets, and to the book of Habakkuk. Now, if you do not own a Bible or do not have a Bible with you this morning, please know that there is one located in the chairs in front of you, which is our free gift to you this morning. Because if you do not own a Bible, make no mistake, we want you to have one. However, the only thing we ask if you take it is that you read it, beginning today by turning to page 785 and joining us as we hear the Word of God together this morning. So again, we are in the book of Habakkuk this morning, starting in chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11, which again, church, is God's response to the prophet Habakkuk's initial lament, which reads, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, we can't help but have tingles run up and down our spine reading the text this morning, and I pray that we never, ever, ever seek the point that we see our own might as our own God. Father, as we take in the text this morning, we understand that there are things that our limited and finite minds will never be able to understand. But Father, as you have communicated in your word, you are God, you are good, you are sovereign, you are our refuge in a time of trouble. And Father, I pray that you strengthen our trust this morning in who you are, God and good. Father, how good it is to come into the presence of our brothers and sisters this morning in Christ to worship you this morning. Father, open our eyes to the text, open our ears to the text, and soften our hearts this morning so that we receive this text well. Convict us to the core, I pray. And Father, I pray for your help this morning as well. Send your Spirit to give me the words to speak. Lord, I pray that they be bold and confident because they are the very Word of God. Lord, I pray that I be humble and above all else, equip this flock this morning with your truth. Do this mighty work, I pray this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. 
Point number one, Christian, God's ways are higher than your ways, and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Do not be frightened by this. Instead, be encouraged and comforted by it. Christian, God's ways are higher than your ways, and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Do not be frightened by this. Instead, be encouraged and comforted by it. Verse 5, which reads, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, not to beat a dead horse here, but I really want to make sure we are all on the same page, church, as we approach verse 5. So again, the prophet Habakkuk here, a man who loves God, who trusts God, and who hates the sin that is now surrounding him throughout the nation of Judah, has cried out to God, pleading with him to do something about the wickedness, the sin, and the injustice that is now running rampant throughout Judah. And thus, here, church, is God's response to Habakkuk's lament. For God says to the prophet Habakkuk in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And boy, let me tell you, church, there is a ton we could unpack unpack here in just this one single verse, for there are countless implications here, countless considerations, and countless potential applications that we could contemplate However, what I initially found so fascinating here, church, was that although Habakkuk came to God with a lament strictly focused on that of Judah, God opens verse 5 by saying absolutely nothing about the violence in Judah, absolutely nothing about the government in Judah, absolutely nothing about the people in Judah, but instead his initial response to Habakkuk in verse 5 is look among the nations. And what we must keep in mind here, church, is that our God does not reign and rule and sovereignly work just over the nation of Judah. For our God, church, is not just some localized deity, but instead, as the prophet Isaiah pointed out, our God, church, he ultimately reigns and rules and is sovereign over the Assyrians, over the Babylonians, over Cush, over Damascus, over Egypt, and over every other nation that is on the face of the earth. And thus, because God reigns and rules and is sovereign over every nation that is on this earth, he can use then any and every nation he pleases to bring about his perfect plan of redemption for this world just as he sees fit. So in essence, when God addresses Habakkuk here in verse 5, It's as if, as theologian James Brunkner describes it, God is shaking Habakkuk into seeing that he can work in and through a much larger and much more complex system of relationships than just being confined to only work in and through the nation of Judah. And thus, because of God's sovereignty and supremacy and preeminence over everything that dwells on this earth, God says to Habakkuk here in verse 5, that I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For this is a work church that is going to literally leave the prophet Habakkuk, verse 5, astounded. Because believe it or not, church, for as smart 
and as wise and as well-informed as we humans think we are, we will never, and I mean ever, be able to figure our God completely out. And thus some of the things he does, some of the events he ordains, and some of the acts that he decrees, at times they will surprise us, Christian. At times they will astound us. At times they will confound us. And at times they will leave us wondering, why on earth would God ever allow that to take place? However, church, when God does work in these unexpected, confounding, and astonishing ways, let it not frighten us, Christian. Let it not drive us to doubt, Christian. Let it not cause us to lose heart, Christian. But instead, let us simply recognize that our God's ways are higher than our ways and that his thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts. That our God's ways are higher than our ways and that his thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts. For as Derek Burgess shared, Yes, to be sure, God does work in some unexpected ways. Voltaire and Gautier, they both said they lost faith when God allowed the Libspin earthquake to take place in 1755. Whereas many other modern skeptics point to different wars and demand, why would God not prevent these catastrophes? However, one of the mistakes that we as humans make is this that we judge God's plan for the world by only the very small section of the world's history in which we see. For example, if we were to stop reading Shakespeare's Macbeth after the first act, or if we were to see Raphael's Madonna only a third of the way finished, would it be fair to judge either? By no means. Therefore, we must remember that since we as humans only see small bits and pieces of God's eternal plan for the world at a time, it is not wise for us to ever judge the work of our God, since only our God, says the Scriptures, knows the end from the very beginning. So in essence, what we see here, church, in verse 5, is that God is letting Habakkuk know, look, I hear you, and I too see the immorality that is running rampant throughout my people and throughout the nation of Judah. However, although you can't see it, Habakkuk, I, God, am working. For I am not asleep at the wheel, for I am not taking a nap, for I am not like the false gods that Elijah mocked when he said that they must have gone off to the bathroom to relieve themselves since they were not present, for I am not like that Habakkuk, but instead I am already working among the nations, and quite honestly, the work I am doing, Habakkuk, verse 5, you wouldn't believe even if I told you. Now before we get to that church and find out exactly what this astounding work was that God was doing throughout the nations, I want us to stop here for a second and to realize that just as God was working among the nations some 2,600 years ago, even when it seemed as though he wasn't, so too churches are God still working among the nations today. Therefore, Christians, simply because you can't see 
or perceive God clearly or obviously or plainly working within your little bubble or within your little sphere, that does not mean, Christian, that God is not working. For our God, he is a spirit church as in omnipresent church, for he is always present, always sustaining, and always working for the good of his people and for his glory, church. For as Paul Wolf put it, God isn't just the alpha and the omega in the sense that he is only the endpoints who disappears in between. But instead, God, he is the beta, the gamma, the delta, and everything in between, the alpha and the omega, for he is Christian, our all and all. Meaning, church, our God, he never stops working in this world and in your life. For his loving kindness, church, it never ceases. His justice, he brings it forth every day, for he bears our burdens daily, will sustain us till the end of the age, and will complete the good work he started in us at the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, church, the question this morning is not if our God is working. The question instead is, when God is working in this world and in this life, but he is working in a way that you simply cannot comprehend, will you then, Christian, trust in him anyway? Will you follow the lead of Noah, who by faith constructed an ark? Will you follow the lead of Abraham, who by faith offered up his son Isaac? Will you follow the lead of all those other saints who by faith faced lions and swords and enemies and persecution and torture and who were sold into two? Will you, Christian, by faith believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and on the third day rose from the grave. For that is your question this morning, Christian. For will you believe and trust and put your faith in a God even when he does something that baffles your limited and finite mind? And not judge him because he's not living up to your standards. And not criticize him because he's not doing what you think is best. And not reject him because he's not meeting your expectations of what is fair and moral and just and perfect, but instead just simply rest in the fact that God, who causes the clouds to rise and who generates the rain and who works in you, Christian, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, that at times he just works in ways that are beyond our comprehension, because he is a God whose years are unsearchable, whose depths are unplumbable, and whose might is unknowable. And thus, Christian, it is never ever, ever a bad place to be, to just be still and to know that he is God and to be comforted by the fact that even in the midst of the chaos of this world around us, that our God is sovereign, that he is always at work, and that even if his ways are higher than our ways, we can still rejoice because we know without a shadow of a doubt, Christian, that blessed are those who trust in the work of God and who find their refuge in him. Amen, church. Which takes us now to point number two, which is this. Do not glory in your own might. Do not glory in your own might. Verses 6 through 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, 
that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So what exactly was this unbelievable work that God was doing amongst the nations? A work that was going to leave the prophet Habakkuk absolutely astounded? Well, in short, in order to deal with the sin and the violence and the injustice that had infiltrated the land of Judah, God, he was going to raise up, verse 6, the Chaldeans, a.k.a. he was going to raise up the big, the bad, the Babylonians in order to deal with the nation of Judah. And in hearing this, the prophet Habakkuk must have been absolutely floored, absolutely shocked, absolutely dumbfounded that in order to judge and discipline and chastise the people of Judah for their wickedness and sin, the rod of discipline that God was going to use was verse 6, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who in the eyes of Habakkuk were even worse than the people of Judah. For Babylon, verse 6, They were a bitter and hasty nation who marched throughout the breadth of the earth and seized dwellings not their own. For this was a nasty and fierce nation, church, who had built up a military that not only knew how to defeat their opponents in war, but who also knew how to destroy their enemies, inflict pain, and to wipe other nations out. I mean, just ask the once mighty Assyrians who were defeated at the hands of the Babylonians just how savage and how brutal they were. Because not only would Babylon defeat and destroy their opponents in battle, but they would also then take what wasn't theirs, plundering those that they had destroyed, and like raiders, they would laugh when they had conquered and won. And thus they were a nation, verse 7, who were dreaded and who were fearsome. For they had a military, verse 8, with horses that were swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Meaning this was a military church that cunningly and ravenously would move around the ancient Near East as if they were always seeking someone new to devour. And thus when they spotted their next victim, verse 9, they all came for violence and gathered and captured captives up like the same. And because their military swiftness and power and might was so great, they, verse 10, scoffed at kings, laughed at rulers, and laughed at every fortress that stood in their way. For these Babylonians were not afraid to fight anyone, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, because they had the ability to simply, verse 11, sweep by like the wind and go on. Meaning, as Ken Fentress describes it, like a category 
5 hurricane that Babylonians could sweep through a nation and go on with ease, leaving only a path of destruction and death in their very wake. And yet, this was the tool that God had ordained to discipline the nation of Judah. For God was quite literally going to use, verse 11, guilty men whose own might was their God. And if there is a statement, church, that tells you all you need to know about the Babylonians, it is right here in verse 11, which again reads that the Babylonians were guilty men whose own might was their God. Now, there are a couple of intricacies within the original text here, but overall, the main takeaway seems to be this, that the Babylonians, they were a people who worshipped themselves, for quite simply, they trusted in their own power, in their own skill, and in their own might church above everything else. I read a story this week, church, which was shared by a pastor named Nathan Castens. And it was about four royal brothers who had decided to each master a unique and special skill. And as time went by, the brothers decided to meet again in order to see what skills they had mastered. I have mastered a science, said the first brother, by which I can take any bone of any creature and create all the bones that go around it. Well, I, said the second, know how to grow a creature's flesh, if indeed all the bones are in place. Whereas the third said, well, I am able to create all of its limbs if I have the flesh. And finally, the fourth shared that he could give life to the creature if its form was complete. Therefore, in order to demonstrate their newly developed skills, the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone. And as fate would have it, they found the bone of a lion laying there in the dirt. So the first brother took it and added the rest of the bones around it. The second brother, he put flesh around the bones. The third brother, he completed the lion with matching limbs. And the fourth brother, well, he gave the lion life. And thus instantly, the ferocious beast arose from the dirt and jumped high into the air and viciously ripped the four brothers apart, only then to vanish deep into the jungle. We too, church, have the ability to create what can devour us, goals and dreams that can consume us, possessions and property and pride that will turn and devour us unless we first seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and allow him to guide what we make of our life. You see, church, God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is serious that we should have no other gods before him, Exodus 20, or worship any other gods, Exodus 43, or have any other gods, Deuteronomy 5, or follow any other gods, Deuteronomy 6, or bow down to any other gods, 2 Kings 17, or have any strange gods amongst us, Psalm 81. And yet the Babylonians here were content for their own power, their own might, and their own invincibility to be their God, which just demonstrates, church, the incredible power of pride. 
for it is pride that blinds us, church, pride that magnifies us, and pride that will ultimately puff us up, which is exactly what we see here from the Babylonians in the text. For as they seized more and more dwellings, not their own, gathered more and more captives, not their own, and destroyed more and more nations, not their own, they thus then thought that all of their power, all of their fight, all of their dominance, fortitude, and might was their own doing and not the result of the sovereignty of God who allowed them to build such an empire. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, as you take inventory of your life this morning, let me then ask you this. When you get that promotion at work, who then gets the glory? When you get singled out for being just so stinking smart, who then gets the glory? Or when you get praise for being the hostess with the mostest and throwing the best parties that this town has ever seen, who then gets the glory? For is it yourself who is finite and limited and dependent, or is it the God of the universe who is sovereign, infinite, and eternal? For my point here is this, church, our belief in the sovereignty of God, it not only allows us to trust in him, Christian, in every situation that comes our way, but our belief in the sovereignty of God also allows us to glorify him and not glory in ourselves in every situation as well. Therefore, do not be content, Christian, to be like the Babylonians, to look down on others, to gloat in your your own successes, and to glory in your own might. But instead, Christian, realize that your God is absolutely sovereign over every area of your life, which means he, Christian, is ultimately responsible for giving you every talent, every success, every ability, every thought, every accomplishment, and every great thing that comes your way. And thus, because of that, as Paul asked the church in Corinth, what then have you not received from God? And the answer to that question is nothing, for everything we have received, church, ultimately comes from God. Thus, do not play the part of the fool this morning, Christian, where because of some success in your field, some money in your pocket, or some degrees in your name, you think you are all that and a bag of potato chips and and are worthy of some honor and praise. But instead, see now, Christian, that your God is sovereign over every area of your life and is the giver of every good gift that you have ever received. Therefore, to God alone be the glory should be the hallmark of our Christian lives now and evermore. And and we should never seek to steal any glory, any glory of God's for ourselves. Now, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, I realize that it is quite possible that you came in here this morning feeling confident that you indeed have this world figured out, thinking you have a job and a career figured out, a family and a house figured out, or maybe even that of retirement and a healthy and wealthy future all figured out, and that you are actually pretty content this morning to rely on your own power and might. 
However, lovingly, let me warn you, non-Christian, that if you have placed your trust in anyone or in anything other than Jesus Christ this morning, then you do not have eternity figured out. And what I mean by that is this, non-Christian, that although you might think you have everything on this side of eternity figured out, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, that means, non-Christian, that you are still dead in your sins, and that the only thing waiting for you on the other side of eternity is that of death, of judgment, of destruction, and eternal damnation. Therefore, non-Christian, I plead with you this morning. Please, please, please humble yourself and let me introduce you to the only one who can save you from this future reality. For his name is Jesus Christ and he is non-Christian, truly God and truly man and truly is the savior of the world. For he came into this world non-Christian and lived the life that we could never live. For Jesus Christ lived a life here on earth non-Christian that was holy and faithful and just and perfect and absolutely free of any kind of sin. And thus he, Jesus Christ, Christ perfectly and completely and truly fulfilled the law of God for the children of God. However, non-Christian, not only did Jesus Christ fulfill the law of God for the children of God, but even more than that, Jesus Christ, he also came to be the propitiation for our sins, aka the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins, meaning the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, he came into this world to lay down his life for his sheep. For Jesus Christ, literally non-Christian, was nailed to a cross at Calvary and died a sinner's death in our very place, bearing the wrath and the punishment and the judgment of God that we as sinners deserve for our sins. However, the blood of this perfect and sinless and spotless sacrifice, it was poured out for the sins of many, and it completely satisfied the wrath of our holy God toward his sinful children. And thus with his wounds, non-Christian, the children of God, oh, they have been healed. Because three days later, Jesus Christ, he did not stay in the grave. For the grave and sin and death, they didn't have the power to keep him there. For Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave and was victorious over sin, triumphant over death, and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you confess your sins and rely no longer on your personal works or might, but instead trust in Jesus Christ with all of your heart as the way, as the truth, and the life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, thus far in the book of Habakkuk, The nation of Judah, who is walking in unrepentant sin, 
they are about to be significantly disciplined by the hand of God. Whereas the Babylonian Empire, a nation who worships themselves instead of God, they are deemed as guilty and will eventually be judged by the hand of God as well. Therefore, if there is one thing that has really stuck out to me during this first section of the book of Habakkuk, is that our God, church, he takes sin seriously. In fact, he absolutely despises and abhors and hates sin. For as Psalm 5.5 notes, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, for you, God, hate all evildoers. Therefore, with all that in mind here, church, I couldn't help but be moved this week to take a deep dive into the depths of my own life and my own actions, my own thoughts, and my own heart in order to determine what sin am I, Wesley Howard Bunty, not taking serious in my life? What sin am I still willingly holding on to? What sin am I still loving that my holy and just and perfect heavenly Father absolutely hates in my life. For as Walter Chantry writes, will not the seriousness of the threats that we see here in Habakkuk concerning sin not lead us as the people of God to repent of our sins? And thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, lovingly, let me ask you, what sins are you still holding fast to this morning? For are you still clutching the sin of pride and self-importance? Are you still clinging to the sin of lust and immorality? For are you still refusing, are you refusing to let go of the sin of jealousy or profanity or anger or gossip or covetousness, drunkenness or that of strife? Because whatever sin you are still holding on to so tightly, brother Christian, sister Christian, I pray that this text is a wake-up call to your soul this morning. I pray that this text absolutely shakes you to the core as you see just how much your God absolutely hates your sin. So much so that it causes you today, this morning, right here, right now, to repent of that sin that you are still holding on to and to learn to hate that sin as well. Thus, if you, brother Christian, sister Christian, have any unconfessed, unrepentant, unmortified sins that you are not taking serious in your life, I pray you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon your soul this morning, and you go running to God, pleading with him to wash you of this iniquity and to cleanse you of this sin. Because you know what, Christian? He will. For I can promise you, Christian, our God, he will forgive you of that sin. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Thus, as the reformer Martin Luther wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of your God this morning, Christian, and repent of your sins unto life and experience the joy of knowing you've already been cleansed of your sin via the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Thus, it is my prayer that we, as a church body, take serious this day and forevermore the wickedness of our sin. Help us, Father, to not be quick to feed our sins, but instead be quick to repent of them, to starve them, to run from them, to mortify them, and ultimately put them to death. For our delight is no longer in our sin, Father, but instead our delight is now in you. Therefore, Lord, convict us to repent repent where we need to repent, to confess where we need to confess, and to mortify what still needs to be put to death. However, even as we seek to mortify our sin, help us, Father, to lean not on our own power or understanding, thoughtfulness or might, but to rely solely on you, the Lord of hosts and the God of might who has set us free from the burden of our sins so that we can now joyfully walk as the children of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you send your spirit this morning to convict us of any sin that we are still holding on to. Lord, let us not try to talk ourselves out of it this morning. Let us not try to continue to tell ourselves that it's okay, but Spirit, give us the same thoughts of our Father. Convict us, Spirit. Help us, Spirit, to hate our sin, that sin that continues to be that bugaboo in our lives. And let us not lean on our own understanding to do this, but to rely on the the God of might the one who sent us, Jesus Christ, into the world to cleanse us of all of our sin through his precious blood, through his precious life. For we are no longer who we are, but we have been bought with a price. Thus, let us continue to repent of our sins unto life. The pride that we have, cleanse us of this, we pray. So the hallmark of our life today and forever and ever be that we trust in you, God, who is sovereign, and to you alone be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.